Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Nexium was around for 20 years. What people don't get is that 17,000 people took these courses from around the world, billionaires, entrepreneurs, doctors, attorneys, all the way down to handymen, to babysitters, moms, dads, religions, different ethnicities, all walks of life for 20 years. The reason that it was able to reach to so many aspects of, of different types of people and around the world is because when people took it, they loved it. They were having incredible realizations and shifts in their life and relationships in their business, their relationship with themselves. So I think that's the first thing that people should know is, is that this is something that people loved. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Mark, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. That's good. Serena, thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure to finally meet you. Yeah, likewise. It is my pleasure to have you here. Uh, I found out about you because you wrote me. And as I was mentioning to you before here, we did an entire series on cults when sort of the Nexium narrative was just dominant in the news. Um, but you have another side of this story, which I was really interested in hearing about. But before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on your life and the choices you've made? God, in, in high school, I was one of those people that tried to have a bunch of different friends groups. Uh, but I think I, I always wanted to be in the cool group. I think a lot of us wanted to be in the cool group, but I struggled to be that cool. Um, but I was also really academic. Uh, and obviously living with, uh, as I'm sure you saw, you know, I lived with Tourette's for 20 years and in high school, my Tourette's was very severe. Uh, and with that, I did, I was just such a people pleaser, you know, cause I was trying to get everyone to accept me because the Tourette's and I didn't want to make people feel uncomfortable. So I did my best to try to like be in different groups. Uh, so that, that's, that's my answer to that question. How would it, what was the second part of it? I mean, how did that affect your life? I mean, obviously, if you, for my interview, so you know that every question leads to more questions. Well, I think what, 
in some ways it actually was, it sort of was a, a negative thing because I, I think I was so concerned as so many of us are in high school that you're just trying to be liked. And I didn't really have an opportunity to really own myself and just know, you know, wait a minute, who are, you know, who does Mark want to be? And then figure that out. And then from there, you know, then try to find, uh, you know, groups of people that, um, it's just so funny. I wasn't, that, that question was like from left field. So I haven't thought about my high school friends groups. Just to be very clear, I had dear, dear friends and, and I'm still, you know, very close with some of them, you know, to this day. I actually just saw a dear friend this morning with his kids. But I think in high school, it was an experience where I was trying to be friends with everyone. And how that affected me later in life is that you realize that you, you know, not everyone is going to like you. And that's mm -hmm. a hard lesson to learn. And it's not something that we're really taught. Uh, in at least in the in the main school in the main main school um you know public the public school system uh because yeah. when you start trying to when you you know particularly in the case in my life as i got older when you want to make a stand for something if you want to stand for a principle you want to do something you know that's unconventional people are not going to like you and you are not going to be friends with everyone and so i i think that i have struggled with that my whole life mm. yeah well Give us an idea of what Tourette's is actually like, because I had a really, really good friend uh, who you know, was an absolutely brilliant guy, MIT engineer. Uh, I met him right out of uh, undergrad. And I remember I didn't know what it was for the longest time. I was like, this unique guy tweets a lot. I'm like, what's up with these whistles? Um, but the thing that really struck me is after a certain point, he stopped being self-conscious about it. But I can only imagine, you know, particularly as a young kid, what that does to your sense of self-esteem and, and, you know, especially when it's not something you can control. Like, talk to me about sort of the experience of being diagnosed. Um, for people who don't know much about it, uh, you know, sort of the neurological aspects of it, can you kind of give us just an overview? Absolutely. With Tourette's, the way that I always talk about Tourette's is that, you know, people, when you're, when I was diagnosed with it, you know, I was told this is a neurological genetic incurable disorder that has no, you know, no cure. And really what it is, is just these very uncomfortable feelings inside of, of my body. The way it's, I find it, uh, the closest analogy is to that of having an itch on the inside of your skin. It doesn't feel like an itch. It's not the same type of sensation, but there's this involuntary feeling that just comes. And the only way as a child that you know how then to get rid of that feeling is to then tick, which is in a sense, scratching that itch. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Because, I, you know, like I know that in pop culture, particularly in like funny movies and stuff, they portray it as sort of this uncontrollable impulse to shout and yell profane things. Um, I remember my friend, and I used to joke about this. He'd be like, dude, he's like, you know how awesome it would be to go to Tourette's convention? He's like, you could swear all you want and wouldn't say anything to you. Yeah, the first time I went to a Tourette's convention was, it was actually quite eye-opening because, you know, growing up with Tourette's, you don't really know a lot of people with it. And, and then you go to a convention. And funny enough, I went when I went to my first one, I thought I was going to be seeing all these people cussing. And really, I was one of the few people. And I was like, wait a minute, don't, you know, doesn't everyone have Tourette's here? Of course, only a, you know, a subset of people with Tourette's curse. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to qualify that, you know, obviously there is this itch and scratch dynamic, but the difference for someone with Tourette's is that it's very difficult to not quote unquote scratch the itch. Mm. It's like having 10 or 15, or in some cases it feels like 50 itches in one spot. 
And until you decide to do that, um, you know, you just feel just this immense discomfort. Uh, and of course, as a kid, I didn't have this type of self-awareness as much about, oh, there's an itch and then there's a scratch. It kind of was just all one thing and there's this ticking going on because I just was so uncomfortable. Mm. How does that affect your ability to participate in something like a classroom uh, and also just sort of socially? Because like I can imagine it would be sort of disruptive to the class too. It's, oh, it's very difficult and it's, for each person with Tourette's, it's a very different situation because, you know, people's tics are different. Some people have much more vocal tics. Some people say words. Some people say bad words. Some are motor tics. Some are jumping up and down. You know, it's, it's this whole gamut. And then, of course, the major, one of the major variables to that is the type of support system that the child has or the person with Tourette's. And so many people, you know, don't have that kind of support. Um, you know, Tourette's is something that, is just, it's very, it can be very disruptive. And so it's very hard for people to understand it. And uh, rightfully so, it's hard to understand. You know, it's it's very different types of behavior, particularly when you're dealing with a classroom of, you know, if you've got 25 kids in a class, that's hard enough in itself. Now, all of a sudden you have, you know, another kid who's barking or ticking or doing. So luckily for me, I had an amazing family uh, that really tried to instill what it means to become an advocate for myself. And so as I got more confidence with the Tourette's, I started to make announcements at the beginning of of uh, of my classes at the beginning of the year. And of course, before that, you know, my family and I, we met with the teachers. I tried to explain to them. And so literally every year at the beginning of every class, I would get up and, you know, go to the chalkboard and say, my name's Mark. I have Tourette's. This is what's going on for me. Uh, you know, and, you know, thank you for being understanding. And that's how I tried to control that's how I tried to control the situation as much as I could. But it's, it's, it was a nightmare in some of the classes. You know, imagine you're sitting there and it's 25 kids in the class and you, you have this, this feeling and this sensation just to tick out the word boring or this sucks. You know, it's funny one time, you know, it's, yeah. or, or a couple times and then it just becomes a nightmare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I so- did whatever I could to try to make it is, is, is comfortable for other people. And then obviously is comfortable for me. And uh, again, I'm very grateful that I just had a lot of support. You know, when I met my friend, uh, the, the MIT engineer guy who, who had Tourette's, I remember the one thing that always struck me about that situation was he thought that Tourette's would make his dating life incredibly difficult. He was always self-conscious about it and thought, yeah, this is, you know, going to be the undoing of my dating life. I mean, granted, he's like the nicest guy in the world and absolutely fucking brilliant and funny as hell. And, um, yeah, we, I mean, he ended up becoming one of my best friends when we were younger and, you know, ended up like everything turned out fine. He's, you know, worked at a hedge fund, made millions, like he's awesome. Um, but that always stayed with me that there was this sort of sense of, oh, this is really like this huge, you know, disadvantage for me when it comes to dating and relationships. And it, it definitely did a number on his self-esteem from what I remember. And, you know, I, I think with, you know, friends and, you know, enough dating experiences, it kind of just got, got past it. But for you, I mean, when it came to things like that, like your social life in, in high school, and that's why I started with that question, um, how did it affect that for you? Were you, you know, self-conscious about it when it came to dating, you know, or when you're hanging out with friends? Like, what was that experience like? It was incredibly self-conscious. I think the, you know, 
if you ask a lot of guys in middle school and high school, you know, that just that that time for all, you know, and, and also for women, you know, there's just so much uh, pressure and judgments and people are just uncomfortable and we're all going through puberty. So there's that going on. And then, of course, on top of that, I have, you know, I'm ticking, barking like a dog, shaking my head. But for some, for whatever reason, you know, I didn't allow that to stop me from trying to pursue uh, women and trying to date. Uh, and of course, you know, I had to find people who, you know, were open, uh, who, you know, recognized uh, that, you know, th- that there was an experience of me that was completely separate from the Tourette syndrome. Uh, but of course, you know, it, it created some pretty funny, uncomfortable situations. Many times when I was with girls, whether I was hooking up or I'm just hanging out with them, I would be ticking other girls' names. Um, I would, you know, tick things like sometimes I would tick like you're fat, even though she wasn't fat, because a, a lot of times my ticks were I was I was saying the riskiest thing that I could say. Uh, you know, that's uncomfortable. I mean, that is not I don't know how to describe it. It sucked. But luckily, you know, I, I was I did the best that I could to try to have a normal life to experience things def- despite this you know, hindrance that I had. And I found, you know, wonderful, wonderful girls and out there that still, um, you know, were willing to date. And so I, I put myself out there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned that people have this to varying degrees. Like, you know, as I said, my friend was an MIT engineer. I was like, you don't seem dysfunctional to me. For God's sakes, you went to MIT and killed it. So how bad can this be? Uh, But there are two things I wonder about. One is sort of like, what are the degrees of severity and how do they disrupt people's lives? And then um, what is it that accounts for the types of ticks? Is there any explanation for that? I don't think there's any specific explanation for that. And in fact, you know, the medical community in general really doesn't understand Tourette's. Uh, you know, it's it's this huge spectrum of tics for people. I'm sure you know people who, um, you know, just blink their eyes a lot. Like, do you know anyone like that? Mm-hmm. Like they just have this like, you know, kind of like a nervous tick. And then there's, you know, do you take it to the extreme to, you know, the old school movie Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo? you know, where, you know, a woman is, you know, barking and cursing and profanity. Uh, so there's this huge range of people that tick. In order to be classified as somebody with Tourette syndrome, you need to be exhibiting both motor and vocal tics. For, uh, for very extreme cases, this completely breaks my heart. For some people, the only solution that they have is something called deep brain stimulation. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-mm. It's uh, it's a brain surgery that they have used on many different types of things now. I think it's mostly used for Parkinson's disease, but they've started with Tourette's as well, where they crack open the skull. They will drill holes into somebody's brain, place two electric rods into their brain and then connect it to a pacemaker in their heart. And this is the the last sort of just their last hope of trying to figure out, you know, uh, how to help their Tourette's. Now, this is for extreme cases, but that's on one end of the spectrum. And then, you know, for, I would say probably the general, for for most people with Tourette's that, you know, it's pretty bad. They look to try things like uh, biofeedback, neurobiofeedback, cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy. And then, of course, there's, you know, tons of options pharmaceutically. Uh, but there's, you know, with, with that comes a a lot of side effects as well. So it's a huge range of of what people do and the treatments that that people try to do to alleviate uh, their tics. Mm. Well, uh, I think uh, this, this might be an inaccurate memory, but if I remember correctly, like if my friend and I got stoned or drunk, his Tourette's would actually subside a little bit. 
which was kind of funny. He was like, great, this is an excuse to go out and get shit-faced. Granted, we were in our 20s, so every weekend was an excuse to get shit-faced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, but in those most severe cases that you're talking about, what is the impact on their ability to just live day-to-day? Oh, I, I think it's, it's debilitating uh, on all levels. Uh, for someone who has it that severe, uh, they are looking for anything to bring any sense of relief, any sense of normalcy to their life. Just this past week, you know, somebody uh, who saw the documentary uh, that I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit, but about yeah. uh, once a documentary came out called My Tourette's, in which we documented the work of uh, how Nexium helped people with Tourette's and they saw it and they sent me an email. I talked to him on the phone. This is someone who had deep brain stimulation and it didn't work, Srini. It didn't work. So imagine you get electrodes put in your brain. It didn't work. And now you're, and he, and he reached out just pleading and begging for help after seeing the movie. I mean, I can't, you know, luckily my Tourette's was not that bad. Uh, you know, I, I had issues and, you know, a lot of prejudice and hate and different things like that, but not to the point where, you know, I, uh, I needed to have brain surgery. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, Nexium, you know, as uh, I mentioned to you, we did this entire series on cults when the Nexium documentary came out. And part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is you have a, a different side of the story. Um, but let's start with like what it is that prompted you to start looking for a solution, like, you know, after you'd been told this is something you're going to be living with your entire life. Funny thing is the way that I was introduced to Nexium wasn't even through what pe- most people know as Nexium. It was called a company, the company was called Executive Success Programs, which was the courses on emotional intelligence, uh, which was one of the companies under Nexium. Like most people don't understand that. Nexium is just sort of a parent company, kind of like uh, like a Viacom, you know, but then under Viacom, there's all these different types of uh, companies and uh, ESP, Executive Success, e- Executive Success Programs for short, um, I was, you know, at the time I was uh, an inspirational speaker all around the nation. I was, you know, speaking at high schools, middle schools, colleges, using my experience of living with Tourette's to convey just a really simple and basic message about, look, you don't know that much about other people. And while I was on the circuit, I ended up finding, meeting another uh, speaker who happened to actually be a coach in ESP at the time. And, you know, when you're just, you know, my whole life, I've always been someone who's wanted to work on myself. I've wanted to, I've wanted to grow. I never had done it. I never had like actually paid to go to a course to do one. But in my conversations with him, he really started to ask me questions about myself that no one had ever asked me um, and started to get me to think about things in a little bit different way. And uh, it became clear that he um, was thinking that way and was, was just very introspective in a way that I hadn't experienced someone. It was because of these classes. So I eventually went to go take them and, and, and really the, one of the other, the, one of the main reasons I took it was because he noticed that I had a lot of judging. I judged myself a lot and he helped me understand that, uh, you know, through different conversations that judging yourself is not a natural thing. Like when you think about a child, like a baby doesn't come into this world judging themselves. You know, that's something that you develop, obviously, as you get older through your indoctrination and society and all these things. And with the Tourette's, I had severe, severe judgment and a lot of, you know, sort of self-punishment and self-hate. And I, I wanted to change that. And from my conversations, I believe it seemed like 
these these classes could help me do that. So that's really why I went. It wasn't anything to do with Tourette syndrome. I mean, I was living with a neurological disorder called Tourette's. I, it wasn't, uh, oh, hey, let's go take a class and see, you know, on, on emotions. And that's going to help me beat Tourette's. It, it just wasn't mm-hmm. even on my mind in, in, in any way. Yeah. So uh, how in the world does that turn into, you know, curing Tourette's? <laughs> yeah. How, how do you go from there? I want to just make, be very clear too, is, is that I was not cure, you know, Nexium did not cure me of Tourette's. We did not cure other people with Tourette's. It's not, uh, it's not something that we have ever said publicly. Um, even though people who are very against Nexium have, have made these claims. What, what, what the tools in ESP, uh, did is that you know, Keith Ranieri, who is the creator, of Nexium and then uh, the core, the, the course's executive success programs is that he created uh, a methodology and that methodology was called rational inquiry. And it was a series of philosophical discussions and questions to help somebody learn about themselves. And as I was going through those explorations, you know, uh, having conversations about, you know, honesty, about having conversations about victimhood, about having conversations about responsibility. As I just started to just think and just learn about myself in a way that I hadn't before, it started to open up a lot of questions um, and thoughts about, um, yeah, it just started to open up things in general. I don't know how else to say than that. And in that process, I um, had started to question things so much. And also one of the, the big parts of the first, it's a 16 day course, but in the first five days, I started to learn a lot about the nature of fear and how fear controls a lot of how our decision-making is run. And I also had, was living with a very severe case of, of uh, OCD at the time. And so one of the things that started to really change is after I took the course, um, I had these really funny uh, things with OCD where I didn't like anyone to touch my face. Do you, do you know anyone with, with severe OCD? Not severe, but um, no, no, actually I don't. I'm thinking of it. God, or do you know, if, like, have you heard of like people kind of have these like idiosyncrasies, you know, where they, you know, they want things in a certain way or touching and or mm. number counting. And after that first course, I was on a beach and I ended up, uh, taking the sand on the beach. And I realized that if I keep living with these rules, which are really, you know, rooted, you know, based out of fear that somehow if I, you know, touch my face, I'm not okay. Um, I'm going to be in a prison, like a, a type of mental prison for the rest of my life. And so I took the sand off the beach and I started rubbing it all over my face, sort of like a scene out of uh, uh, Survivor, or, uh, what's the movie with Tom Hanks? Uh, Castaway. Castaway, yeah. In a sort of a scene like that. And that, funny enough, I didn't know that that was me, in a sense, starting to overcome my Tourette's, but it was the beginning of me completely loosening this foundation and this fear that I was living with uh, all the time. Mm, wow. Well, so obviously, you know, the press around Nexium has been largely negative, um, you know, and for the most part, it, all I know is the darker side of this story. I mean, you have a very positive side of the story. And you know, we'll, we'll bring back a few clips from my conversation with Sarah. I don't doubt that there were positive outcomes, but what the hell happened? How did it go so off the rails to get to this guy in Nigump in prison? There's, it's, it's an incredible question, uh, Serini. And I, 
you know, one in a very, you know, simple thing is, is that it was clear that this was, you know, for, for Nexium was around for 20 years. What people don't get is that 17,000 people, over 17,000 people took these courses from around the world that were billionaires, entrepreneurs, uh, doctors, attorneys, all the way down to uh, uh, handymen, to babysitters, moms, dads, uh, different religions, different ethnicities, uh, all walks of life for 20 years. The reason that it was able to have such far-reaching, uh, it was able to, to reach to so many aspects of, of, of different types of people and around the world is because when people took it, they loved it. They were having incredible realizations and shifts in their life and relationships in their business, um, just their relationship with themselves. So I think that's, that's the first thing that people should know is, is that this is something that people loved, absolutely loved. Uh, and then, uh, unfortunately, you know, at the time we didn't know about it because it was obviously a secret society. Um, but there was uh, a secret society that was created that was not a part of, you know, Nexium. It wasn't a company under, you know, it was a secret society, um, you know, that, uh, that these women, uh, had created, uh, with Keith. And of course, you know, uh, Whatever, whatever one, uh, because of the nature of how it was, and I, and, and I encourage, uh, any listener to go listen to the dossier project. It's actually a group of women who were in DOS, uh, who are actually still very positive, um, and have a very different experience than, uh, you know, what people like Sarah Edmondson are saying about it now. Um, and so when, when you hear that, you know, DOS was something, that clearly was different. It was uh, not for everyone. And it was on the, the, I guess you would say the cutting edge of sort of self-empowerment for women. Um, and because of the nature of it, it could be completely, it can be, it could be taken completely out of context. Um, and it's something that's very easily turned into something very, very salacious. Mm. And so it was just sort of low hanging fruit for, uh, people to attack Nexium and somehow you know, take something that wasn't even a part of Nexium. And then if you, you know, label something, as soon as you label something a sex cult, now all of a sudden people think what a group of a hundred uh, women were doing in their private life, which had nothing to do with sex, you call that a sex cult. And then you say, well, Nexium's a sex cult. Um, it's very difficult to undo that narrative. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, well, speaking of that narrative, let me bring back a clip from Sarah uh, and my conversation with her. Take a listen. When does something go from a devotion to dysfunction? Now, there could be a bunch of people who are following you and think you're awesome. doesn't make you a cult leader. A, because you're not lying. B, you're not making them dependent on you. C, they can leave at any time. D, they can ask you questions. E, you're accountable to people. Cults don't have any of that. There are good-intentioned, well-intentioned coaches, people, leaders, all that stuff. Leadership can exist without um, deception, without culty behavior. But I guess I would encourage people to a research properly if there's any allegations against a leader or a coach or a group or an organization where there is smoke there is fire is one thing and also how that organization or coach or whatever let's just say coach for the purpose of the conversation Mm -hmm. how that coach deals with those allegations do they look into it or do they say that person's just crazy (laughs) so what do you make of that i mean how do you you know you're presenting a different side of this story so how does somebody like Sarah's story become the predominant narrative if there is, you know, another side to this story? Like, why is that the dominant narrative about Keith Raniere? Sure. Well, I think there's a couple, you know, basic things to that. You know, first off, uh, you know, Sarah's story is a very salacious story. Um, and it's also, you know, she's claiming to be a victim. When she came out with her story, it was the height of the Me Too movement. 
you know, so there's a certain energy that was going on in the country about, you know, just any time, any, any time, you know, a woman is claiming uh, abuse, you know, or that she was abused, you know, it was just a, a very hypersensitive time that, of course, there can be no questioning around that and that clearly there must be an issue. Now, I just want to make, be very clear. I don't support sexual assault or abuse uh, of women in any way. So, and I never have, and I never will. But, you know, what I do believe in is due process. And I believe in that if we want to be in a civilized, in a more ethical, you know, society, it's important to question people. So I think that, you know, unfortunately, that's not a very popular position to take some time. Now, with the case of Sarah, you know, here she did something in her private life, uh, you know, where she, got, you know, choose to do something that her husband did, was not aware of. Uh, she got a brand and, uh, you know, for whatever reason, um, she then decided to change her experience about what had happened. And she then, you know, claimed that she was a victim of something and then found herself on the front page of the New York Times, you know, pulling down her pants, showing a brand. I mean, that's going to get you international attention. Now, without really talking about Sarah's experience, I'll just say, you know, two things that if for someone that wants to to think about this critically, Sarah Edmondson has no charge. There, there are no criminal charges of that that originate um, from Sarah. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, that um, she filed, like, like Sarah, I guess you would say. Yeah, like there are no, like Sarah Edmondson is not the victim of any crime in the trial. Yet Sarah Edmondson is somehow the face of of being a victim of Nexium, even though no crime happened to her. Yeah. So that's one thing I think for people to think about. And the other thing is, is that, you know, Sarah's story um, is, is inconsistent, um, where, you know, on the, the front page of the New York Times, she was told that she was getting a brand. Excuse me. She, she said that she was told that she was going to get a tattoo where if you look in the court, uh, if you were actually at the trial and you look at the transcripts, it's very clear, uh, that Lauren Salzman, who enrolled her, um, told her she was going to get a brand. So there's just many things about her story that are inconsistent. And that's why, um, you know, uh, those are things that I look for when I'm evaluating, you know, what happened and the evidence. But I yeah. think the most important thing is we live in a time where it's super fashionable and easy to be a victim. Mm. And that's not, I'm not judging someone for that. I'm just saying it's, 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 and I know that firsthand. I mean, I lived with, you know, this medical condition where I was a victim my whole life. And, and I get how, how easy it is to, you know, want to blame and not take responsibility for your life. Um, but I just think it's important for people to realize Sarah Edmondson is somehow the voice of Nexium, yet nothing, nothing bad happened to her. The only thing that she's claiming is she was, she somehow regrets her decision of choices she made. What about all the other women? Uh, you know, you're talking about due process here. Obviously, I don't imagine anybody goes to a trial without any semblance of due process. 
Yeah. So I, to, I think there's just a couple things to, to zoom out at. Uh, one is that, you know, what I have been fighting for the last couple of years is, is the injustices of due process that took place within the trial. So I think that's, you know, I'm not out there. Um, you know, what, what I shared with you about Sarah is, is what I say about Sarah. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to, uh, talk about all the details that she's claiming or not claiming because I, I just wasn't there. I'm just talking. So there's that. But with respect to the trial, one, you know, after it took place and I, you know, looked at the evidence and I looked at the transcripts, you start to see that there was many issues in which the prosecution was uh, trying to, it, it was a trial of prejudice and hate. You know, like one very specific, specific example is they decided to bring in evidence of uh, uh, abortion history of some of the people that Keith, Keith Ranieri was in a relationship, uh, that he was in a relationship with. Um, now, whether or not that's even true or not true, I have no idea. But that has nothing to do with the fact of any of the crimes that he was even charged with. You're only doing that to completely prejudice, prejudice the jury and bring up a lot of emotions. Um, the other thing that I've been fighting for the last couple of years, uh, is, uh, s with, with a group of friends is that in, uh, you know, right before the trial, 50 days before the trial, after a two year investigation from the EDNY and the FBI, um, ac they, they accidentally found child pornography on an external hard drive, um, in one of the apartments that Keith had frequented. It wasn't even his home. So it wasn't on a camera, it wasn't on a media card, it wasn't on a computer. They found a random external hard, hard drive. And that child pornography was uh, uh, actually, in the words of the lead prosecutor, Moira Kimpenza, it was the heart uh, of the racketeering charges. And it completely changed uh, it, the course of the rest of the trial because all the co-defendants pled guilty right after the child pornography was uh, found. The judge was unwilling to sever the case with the co-defendants. You know, who Keith Raniere is already a hated person, and now they're going to have to go to trial with someone with possession of child pornography and sexual exploitation of a minor. So that was right before the trial. Um, and before the child pornography, it was a case of entirely uh, consenting adults. And this changed it now to, a, you know, now minors are involved. Mm. And over the last three years, we've been able to um, find incredible digital forensic experts. Um, and now six have come out. Three former FBI showing that uh, the digital evidence w of child pornography was tampered with while in the possession of the FBI. So, you know, this is something that, you know, should should horrify anyone. Um, just the fact that there's this type of evidence out there. But this is, you know, what I have been. I just want to make clear, you know, this is really what I've been fighting for with respect to due process. You know, it sounds to me like this is more than just a story about a sex cult, but it's a story about how we consume and process information in the modern well, age. Well, th I think, you know, even just with you saying sex cult, like that's a perfect example. Yeah. Um, just like just to break that down a little bit, you know, when you said about, look, there's all these other women. Um, so, again, just to, to, to help sort of for the, the listener to, to think about this in their mind, you have 17,000 people who've taken a course. 17,000 people. DOS had about a hundred women. Uh, again, that was not a company under Nexium. It was a secret society. Nobody knew about it. 
in the trial itself, and, and correct, I, I might be wrong, I might be off by one, but out of 17,000 people, Srini, there are three current uh, women claiming uh, to be victims of a crime. And yet somehow Nexium is now a sex trafficking organization in, in people's in people's minds. The other thing that most people don't realize is that Keith Raniere, you know, was charged with sex trafficking, forced labor. People think of this as a sex cold, all this stuff. Are you aware that there's not a single charge of him having sex with anyone in the trial? Wow. There's not a single charge of rape. There's not a single charge of assault and battery. There's not a charge of any violence. There's not even, there's not even evidence that he spit on someone. There's not a single charge of weapons. There's not a single charge of drugs. And yet somehow Keith Ranieri was charged to 120 years in prison with no violence, no weapons, and no drugs. Now, whether, you know, uh, you know, whether he's guilty or innocent, whether he's a, uh, you know, a good guy or a bad guy, these are things that should be alarming to people that should at the very least, uh, what I hope is raise doubt in people's mind about, wait a minute, what is, what is really going on here? And more importantly is, you know, whether he's, um, you know, whether you like him or not guilty or innocent really what the, the thrust of what we've been trying to do these last three years is that the government, particularly agents in the FBI, prosecutors, these people should not be committing crimes to convict people. No one should be okay with that. It should be, uh, there's no, there's no, you know, no matter what somebody thinks Keith Raniere did, uh, you know, the government committing crimes is the worst crime to, crimes of them all. Um, but unfortunately, because of the narrative, because of the prejudice, most people don't want to talk about this. And unfortunately, the media has been almost completely silenced on the evidence. You know, one thing that I wonder about all of this, obviously, 17,000 people have been through these programs. Um, and this is the reason I was more interested in that series than specifically talking about Nexium was because I saw this sort of pattern in personal development workshops and personal development companies where it starts out with one workshop and before you know it, like Landmark. The Landmark Forum is a perfect example of this. Uh, people would always ask me about the Landmark Forum and you'd be shocked how many of my guests were Landmark people. Um, and every time somebody asked me, I'm like, go do the first two courses and get the fuck out of there. Don't go anywhere near that place. Um, because the information is life-changing and the organization is a shit show. Uh, and I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes that there were these people who would go there and they would just become absolute landmark junkies. Uh, and it was all they would talk about. It was all they think about. And it, you it got to the point where it was annoying. Like you didn't want to be around them. And, you know, I'm saying this as somebody who actually found the information to be really valuable, but the way that they exploit people to be very manipulative. And I want to bring back a clip from Rick Allen Ross, uh, who you jokingly called your hero. Um, which I think will make a, a nice jump off point for this next part of our conversation. Take a listen. The seminar selling company doesn't want you to wake up and they're doing everything possible to make you feel that if things aren't working out, it's your problem. There's never anything wrong with their seminar training. 
It's always, you aren't really absorbing the training properly or uncoachable. It's your problem. Same thing with multi-level marketing companies. If, if you're, if you're not making money, it's because you're a loser. It's not because their business plan is flawed. For example, market saturation. They have too many distributors in a given area, which they never consider because they're just trying to get, make as much money as they can from everybody. But the bottom line is they always blame you. They make you feel that you are responsible for whatever shortcomings there are. So with that in mind, uh, what is going on here where we get this sort of vicious cycle where people go to these things? I mean, you mentioned that people's lives have changed. And I saw it too. Like there were people who came out of Landmark and their lives changed. Then there are people who just go back to Landmark over and over and over again and they don't do anything. Well, I think, I mean... I'm not sure what Rick Ross is saying in this. I mean, I hear what he's saying, but he's, I mean, he's just giving very general sweeping. These are just, yeah, these are just sort of vast generalizations, uh, negative, negative generalizations about an organization. I think the problem is, is that, you know, anyone can be a critic like that. Anyone can just say anything like that. And maybe there is, maybe that that happens in companies. I'm sure it does. So what? I mean, I think part of the issue is, so I think, yeah, so what in the sense of if somebody is enjoying something in their life and they like it, why is that a problem? You know, for when, when you use the word, you know, these people are being exploited. Well, if they're taking a course and they're deriving benefit out of it, whether they're seeing that manifest, you know, in better business results, well, that's up to them. But if it brings them joy, you know, for some people becoming a nun brings them joy. I don't see the same value out of that, but I don't have to make vast generalizations about how they're not getting anything out of life. Mm. The reality is, is people have different desires and different wants. What I can tell you specifically about Nexium is that, um, from, you know, what, what Rick Ross is saying is just categorically untrue. I lived with one of the most severe cases of Tourette's and now I don't have Tourette's. So I'm not sure what he's talking about, that people don't get good results. I mean, we, we, uh, you know, had anonymous surveys in Nexium where, um, and I'm going to be a little off on this, but again, this is an anonymous survey that people do and that they take at the end of the course. Um, it was like 95% of people that took the first five day, um, said it was incredible. So, you know, people, the reason that people went and took the courses is because they were paying for them, went to them, took time out of their life because it received a benefit. Whether it's Nexium, whether it's Landmark, whether it's, you know, somebody who's offering, you know, boot camps at a gym. What's the problem if people enjoy it? Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I'm with you on that. I've, I've done my fair share of these types of workshops and each one of them has had their own benefits. Um, the thing that I wonder about is when we get into these situations where it starts to isolate them from other people in their lives where, you know, they, they do this because like, you know, we were talking about my own experience with the seduction community. And I, I remember for three years, I realized I was like, wait, my whole life is this thing. I don't have a life outside of this thing. And I've passed up on opportunities to go on trips with friends. I've done a lot of things that I, I missed out on a lot of experiences. I guess, but my, just to cut you off there is, I yeah. guess my question is what's the problem with that though? So what? So what if you, what if the, the fact that you 
at that moment in your life, that's what you wanted to do. Yeah. So, okay, that, that's fair. What about the situations where people spend money they can't afford to spend? Because I know that happens too. Again, that is like, in terms of the fundamental thing that I just feel is I believe in people making their own decisions in life and learning to fail. If I believe that there's a chorus that's somehow telling people they have to do something in order to be okay and they need to figure out how to pay for it, even if they don't have the money, that doesn't sound like that's a good thing. Like, I completely agree with you. Like, that's not a good uh, business model to have. So, you know, there's not, I completely agree with that. One, that's not what happened. I, I didn't see that in Nexium uh, at all. Uh, but if someone has a business model like that, yeah, I agree with you. That's a, that's a crappy business model. And for the person that's doing that, well, at some point, you know, I believe that you know, they're going to learn from their mistakes. They're going to learn, you know, there's going to be a certain point where they don't have money and then they're going to learn from that and be like, I can't keep doing this. But I don't think we want to live in a society where we micromanage adults, the decisions of other adults. I think that's, you know, one of the biggest struggles that we have as a society is, is that people don't, you know, we don't learn how to grow up and how to take responsibility. And, and the way that you do that is through learning and failing and, and, Sometimes making not a great decision and learning from it, but that's life, right? Absolutely. Well, so as I, you know, in our conversation, my sense is, correct me if I'm wrong, is that basically it's a group of outliers that have created the dominant narrative around Nexium. And there's another side of the story, but that side of the story, as you mentioned to me, has been impossible to get coverage for. Exactly. I mean, again, I mean, you have 17,000 people, you have, you know, three, it was current students that were claiming, uh, you know, being victims of a crime. You then have maybe about another 50 to 80 people who have claimed to be a victim, um, you know, and, you know, there's a civil lawsuit, there's people suing Claire Bronfman, who has, you know, enormous pockets. And so these people are now claiming to be a victim. Um, but it was, you know, the narrative was just so strong and the exaggerations kept building on exaggeration, um, you know, where to the point that, you know, I've seen articles where people believe, you know, children were sex trafficked. I mean, that's not that's not even a charge in the case, but just because of the nature of the salaciousness of it um, and how much I think, you know, any time in society, no matter how much somebody, you know, we don't like someone, it's so dangerous when you make an individual or a group of people and you make them a monster. Um, you know, I experienced that, you know, with the Tourette's, you know, people didn't understand what was going on and you just, you, you, you think the worst and, uh, you know, it's, I understand it's a natural thing, but it starts to limit your ability to be more rational and critically think about, wait, well, what's really going on here? Uh, and just the last thing I'll say in that one of the reasons that you hadn't heard more stories of people becoming, you know, who had very positive experiences and different experiences is that the government made it a RICO case. So here they they took a completely nonviolent, wonderful community of people and turned it into a RICO organization, which is like a mob, like a mob family. So anyone that was, uh, you know, wanted to come and speak out had the fear of basically being indicted. Mm, wow. Of course, that's not, you know, you can't understand that from the headlines. Yeah. This to me sounds more than anything 
like a story about our modern media environment and information and the way that it's consumed, the way it spreads. And so I have to ask you, like, what role do you think tools like social media have played in the narrative that it's created? Because I think that to me is the bigger lesson here is like understanding the role that our modern media landscape plays in creating narratives. Because, you know, I, I know this from my, my experience of being on a reality TV show. Like, you know, the girl that they matched me with was portrayed as a villain. And I, you know, people are like, you're not fighting back, you're not defending yourself. And I was like, yeah, that's because I understand how the media works and I'm the one who's going to be villainized if I fight back and I'll look like a jackass. And I'm a public figure. I have to think about, you know, how I'm perceived. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Uh, there's so much that I could say to that. I think the simplest thing is, you know, social media is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful tool. I think we just don't realize the power that we, that we have in our, at, at, at the fingertip, you know, at, at just, at just the, at the click, we don't understand the power that we have over people's lives. And I mentioned, I heard the other podcast, um, with Craig, I forgot his last name. Yeah. Uh, uh I can't even remember off the top of my I'm, head, right? No, you have so many guests. I know. Uh, but he, you know, he talked about, you know, well, I, he walks around with thinking about, you know, what if I'm wrong? And I don't think, you know, with nowadays, with the leverage of how just from the click of my phone, I can completely, I have complete control over someone else's reputation. That is an extraordinary amount of power to have over somebody's life. Mm -hmm. And we don't, we don't, I don't think we walk around realizing we have that kind of power. And so we just, you know, uh, write something, we share a story, we, we, um, we just want to get our feelings off our chest whatever it might be. Um, and just thinking that, you know, because I can say whatever I want to say, yes, that is true. The question is, is it a good thing just to say whatever you want to say? Yeah. Uh, and with respect to this case, it was like wildfire of, you know, somebody hears that, you know, women were branded. Of course, you know, immediately that's going to catch like wildfire and people then believe it's true. You know, mm. and where here you have a case where no one was branded against their will. You know, that sounds like women were branded like cattle. Women chose to get a brand. It was a consensual thing. They used a cauterizing pen and it was like getting a tattoo. But that nuance is lost. And, of you know, that's the that's the pros and cons of social media. Yeah. Well, you know, what do you think the responsibility of people who produce media is when it comes to a story like this? And what has been the impact on your relationships with people as a byproduct of being on the other side of this story? I think people in the media should be more like uh, investigative journalists. Uh, I think that one of the difficulties is that so much media is portraying itself as if they are uh, arbiters of truth, you know, like that they're, that they're just telling the truth and, and not recognizing what they're sharing is subjective, it's slanted, it's their opinion, it's filled with bias, it's filled with prejudice, where if, you know, you really had someone that said, okay, wait a minute, when if somebody, you know, if there's, you know, someone that's screaming help, someone's screaming help, imagine if, yes, of course, you obviously want to immediately attend to the fact to make sure that they're okay. But once they, you know, stop screaming, can we, you know, whether I'm a journalist, I'm a documentarian, whatever it is, say, okay, let's just take for a moment, let's take out all the prejudice, let's take out the emotion, and let's just start looking at facts. 
And from there, let's start really trying to figure out what is the truth and, and, and more like the scientific method. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the process, you know, what happens. Even just, um, there was another documentary that came out called Seduced. It was on stars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, uh, and I actually, uh, a year ago, I filed a defamation lawsuit against them for how they portrayed me, where they took, uh, and m- they manipulated raw footage and spliced it with other footage. Uh, to make it appear that I support sexual assault against women. They basically compared me to an ISIS terrorist. Uh, and sadly, uh, just this past week, I lost. The judge completely dismissed, uh, dismissed it. And in her, in her motion, she wrote, you know, even if, uh, the documentary manipulated footage, that's not grounds for defamation. I mean, to wow. me, that was, bre- it was breathtaking. So I think in general, media must become more like scientists and we, and we need to recognize it's, you know, we all have so much power over each other's lives. Um, it's not, you know, do you just want to make it about clicks and about money and what will be the most salacious? Or do we want to really recognize that, um, media has an incredible opportunity to bring out truth and actually to help a lot of people, um, not necessarily destroy, you know, destroy their lives. Yeah, you know, uh, this is actually why I wanted to have this conversation because I think it's your story is less about Nexium and it's more about the role that media plays in shaping truth and culture. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, if uh, I think once the truth comes out about the injustice, I think people will look back at the Nexium thing and go, "Wow, we really had it wrong," and why were we not willing to uh, question more? Uh, it's uh, again because of the nature of the, the Me Too movement and the fact that this was about you know um, uh, you know abuse against women. It's a very sensitive and delicate issue for people, where you know it's even it just to question a woman's experience. You know, even me on this podcast, I'm afraid to talk about you know questioning Sarah because of what people you know the the backlash. But it's important to question, and it doesn't mean I'm against women. It doesn't mean uh, I'm against abuse or anything like that. It means, wait a minute, someone is accusing somebody of a crime. We need to question. We need to evaluate that. Uh, and, and look, it's, it's happening more and more throughout, you know, the last, throughout the decades, we've seen how many wrongful convictions there are, how many false allegations there are. You know, one that I, re- that's been seared into my mind from years ago was the Duke Lacrosse case. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's like Groundhog's Day. We forget that that happens. And something I think a lot about, or have, have you seen, uh, Srini, have you seen like after somebody's wrongfully convicted, um, or excuse me, there, yeah, someone who was wrongfully convicted, they're exonerated and they yeah. walk out of the, the courtroom stairs, you know, and, and the news is there and everyone's happy and cheerful, mm-hmm. which we all should be. It's, it's a beautiful thing to see. We forget. That that person walking down those stairs 10 years ago or 20 years ago, they were the monster on the TV. Mm. That was the person that everyone was saying, this is a monster. And now 20 years later, we're all crying, watching our TV. And then we turn off the TV and then we go back to looking at the next monster. I'm not saying there aren't people who do very bad things out there. But the thing is, why do we need to demonize people? Why don't we just, just 
work together as adults, as, as, as people who want to be better, who want to be more humanitarian and try to evaluate the truth. And then once you find the truth, we can hold people accountable. Uh, but it's, I don't think the media understands, uh, they're not playing that type of role right now. Two final questions for you. Uh, what has been the impact on your relationships with other people uh, as a byproduct of being on this other side? You had mentioned, I think, before we hit record that Sarah at one point was a very, very good friend of yours. Yeah, I've, I've you know, my relationships with, I've, I've had many, it's been a long five years, uh, you know, since this all started. Uh, I've lost many dear friends of mine, you know, people who both were in the community and people who had never even taken the courses. I think it's hard for people to, uh, you know, without diving deeper and looking at the evidence and knowing what I know about what has happened and transpired, I think it's hard for them to understand why I'm fighting to expose the injustice and stand by my friends uh, to help exonerate them um, and also to, you know, to fight against the FBI. But I think for the people that that really know me and and were my closest, just just people that knew my heart, that knew knew who I am as much as they, you know, could at the core, even if they don't totally get why I'm doing what I'm doing, they still have stood by me. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like the old cliche. It's like, you know, once, once you're, you know, in that type of adversity, you really try, you really find out who your, your, your true friends are. Um, so it's been, you know, painful. And, uh, but I also, yeah, it's, it's been painful, but that's part of, that's part of the journey. Well, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody something unmistakable? I think it's the, and I think I've said it before on here, I think it's somebody is, someone's courage and strength to do, to stand for something, even when it's not popular. Um, and whether that might be a stance out in public or it might be an unpopular uh, thought in your head, you know, to, it, you know, to do something that's unconventional, that is scary, takes courage and it takes strength. Um, and that's something that, uh, you know, unfortunately it was one of the things we taught in the courses about, you know, how to develop that. And it's, it's not something a lot in life we, we teach in schools. Um, you know, we can, we can teach a lot of subjects, but we don't teach people how to find courage to make, uh, the unpopular decision sometimes. And I think that would help people a lot. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us um, to share your story, your wisdom, uh, your insights, and, and really, I mean, get us to think. This was such a fascinating conversation, and I'm really glad you reached out. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, and everything else you're up to? So people can go check out in my website at markelliot.com. Um, and also, if people are interested in, in looking at the injustices that I was talking about, um, they can check out Make Justice Blind. Dot com. And again, if people are interested in a very different side of DOS to also check out the dossier project. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we wrap the show with that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.